Good afternoon, Sovereign Grace Church, Pasadena. Good afternoon. It is so good to worship with you today. I am glad to be here. I'm excited to spend the next few minutes meditating together on God's Word. My name is Tim Owens. I am one of the pastors here at Sovereign Grace. And if you are just joining us for the first time today, we are right in the middle of a sermon series in Psalm 119. That's right, we're spending the entire summer in one chapter of the Bible, Psalm 119. As a reminder of the context for this series, Psalm 119, as many of you know, is the longest chapter in the Bible. That bears some significance, does it not? It's an acrostic poem. It has 22 stanzas, and each stanza corresponds to a different letter of the Hebrew alphabet. So it's a very intricate piece of literature, very purposeful. We, we can expect that every line of the poem has purpose and meaning for us. And as such, it should pique our attention when we learn that nearly every single line of the poem, the longest chapter in the Bible, references God's word directly. But it's not merely information. Psalm 119, as you would expect from poetry, is not a lecture. It's not hollow information. It's not head knowledge about God's word. In fact, it's surprisingly intimate and personal. First and foremost, Psalm 119 is a prayer. It's a private conversation between the author and God in which the author connects God's word to every area of his life. Today we're going to be in the 19th stanza, that's verses 145 to 152. Uh, let's start by reading this together, and then we will pray and begin. So Psalm 119, starting in verse 145. With my whole heart I cry, Answer me, O Lord. I will keep your statutes. I call to you, save me, that I may observe your testimonies. I rise before dawn and I cry for help. I hope in your words. My eyes are awake before the watches of the night that I may meditate on your promise. Hear my voice according to your steadfast love. O Lord, according to your justice, give me life. They draw near who persecute me with evil purpose. They are far from your law. But you, O Lord, are near and all your commandments are true. Long have I known from your testimonies that you have founded them forever. Let's pray. Father, our text today brings us a massive reality. But we confess that it is a reality to which we will remain utterly indifferent 
our hearts will be insensitive to the life-changing reality of this text apart from the intervening work of your Holy Spirit. So we ask that you would send the Holy Spirit to bless the preaching of the word, to prepare our hearts to receive your word. Father, to apply this text to every life this afternoon. We pray these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Now, I am sure that most of you are familiar with a PBS television show entitled Antiques Roadshow. The show travels around the country and invites people in each city to bring in family heirlooms, antiques, to have them professionally appraised. Now, of course, the appeal and drama of the show is that someone may discover that their old family heirloom is actually worth thousands of dollars, and we're all watching with bated breath, how much is it going to be worth? Now, most of the items that get valued on the show end up being worth somewhere between $1,000 and $10,000. So that, that's good. That's nothing to laugh at. If I took in some knickknack off my grandmother's shelf and an appraiser said, hey, that's worth $5,000, I would go home feeling pretty excited. But sometimes the show uncovers items that have enormous value, life-changing value. And that's what happened on a particular show that was filmed in August of 2012. It was shot on location in Corpus Christi, Texas. And a man from Corpus Christi brought in a painting of a Latin American worker. And he said the painting had been in his family for 80 years. And he, also, he, he almost seemed to be apologizing for bringing it in. He said, you know, just the last several years, it's been hanging behind a door in a dark corner of our house. You, you couldn't really see it. It's kind of dusty. I know it's in bad shape. He's like apologizing to the appraiser as she tries to, to value the painting. And this appraiser from Boston, she confirmed that it was actually painted over 100 years ago in 1904 by an artist named Diego Rivera. And he's one of the most significant Latin American artists of the last century. Now, what's more, this particular painting is one of a very small number of paintings that he painted very early in his career. So he actually painted this painting when he was 18 years old. So it had enormous value. And then as the tension builds, you can see the man almost doesn't know how to receive this information. He's, he's quite unexpected. And then she drops this. I think on the retail market, this painting would be worth between $1.2 and $2.2 million. The, the man who brought the painting in is dumbfounded. The color drains out of his face. He turns pale. The, the first thing he says is, well, I just, I just don't know what to say. And then there's an awkward silence for about 30 seconds. And then he just starts chuckling to himself as though he's off camera, as though this isn't going to show in front of thousands of people in this country, as he realizes the impact of, I own a painting that's worth more than a million dollars. Now, the aspect of this story that I want to draw your attention to is the 80 years that this family had $1.2 million hanging behind a door in a dark corner of their house. 80 years is a long time. It's not hard to imagine that the family must have gone through some times of financial distress over those 80 years. Maybe a car broke down. 
Maybe they needed to put a new roof on the house. Maybe there were medical bills to pay. And, and you understand, imagine the, the anxiety and distress that we feel when, when finances are tight and a bill is coming due. And all the time, all that time, enormous value, wealth, $1.2 million was gathering dust in the corner of the house. Friends, our text today is about something much more valuable than a $1.2 million painting. It's about the most valuable aspect of the Christian faith, and I do not say that lightly, the most valuable aspect of the Christian faith. It is something so valuable that it can give you peace and courage in times of trial, something that can fill you with a kind of pleasure and joy that is durable, a pleasure and joy that's not fleeting, that doesn't go away when things get hard. In fact, it is something so valuable that if you perceive the true value, if, if I could convince you of the true value of this aspect of the faith, you would gladly give up everything that you have in order to get it. But just like the Diego Rivera painting, I suspect that this supremely valuable gift is often packed away in the closet, gathering dust in the dark, unused, and not functioning in our lives the way that it is meant to because we do not get it. We do not understand the full value. The gift that I'm talking about, the gift that I believe this text holds up for us for our meditation today is God's nearness to his children. I'm not talking about his mere physical presence. Uh, we know that God, had, God is omnipresent and that we can never be closer to or further away from God, spatially speaking, physically speaking. But that's not what the psalmist is talking about. The psalmist is describing relational closeness. He's describing intimacy with the God of the universe. This is the relationship that we lost in the Garden of Eden and that can be ours again through faith in Jesus Christ. The main idea of our text today is very simple, a very simple but profound promise. A promise that is just as valid on Sunday afternoon in 2023 as it was when this psalmist was writing. A promise that's repeated throughout the pages of scripture and to which the psalmist bears testimony. And it's this, the Lord draws near to those who seek him. The Lord draws near to those who seek him. In our text today, the psalmist is anxious and afraid. We're going to see it in the first several verses. Verse 150 tells us that his enemies are encircling him. His enemies are drawing near to him. But his response to this legitimately dangerous situation is instructive for us. And what he receives from the Lord is like a $1.2 million painting, a gift that we are prone to undervalue. So we do not, we often do not seek it as earnestly as we should. Our text gives us three main points today. Point number one. Seeking the Lord, verses 145 to 148. Point number two, according to his covenant love, verse 149. And point number three, the nearness 
of God, verses 150 through 152. Let's jump right into point number one, seeking the Lord. Look with me at the first half of each of the four verses in this stanza, starting with verse 145. With my whole heart, I cry, answer me, O Lord. I call to you, save me. I rise before dawn and I cry for help. My eyes are awake before the watches of the night. As we've said before, nearly all of Psalm 119 is is a prayer. But there's something extraordinarily unique about the prayer in the 19th stanza. And I think it becomes most evident if you try to imagine yourself praying this prayer to God. Try it with me. Imagine yourself praying these words to God. God, I cry to you with my whole heart. I'm calling out to you, God. I'm rising before dawn, Father. I'm staying awake through the watches of the night. This is a unique prayer. In this stanza, the author is actually praying about prayer. He seems to be telling God how passionate and earnest and sincere his prayers have been. And I I think the logic is not difficult for us to understand, but I suspect that many of us would feel extremely uncomfortable praying this way. Look at verse 145 again. With my whole heart I cry, answer me, O Lord. You see what he's doing. The psalmist is building a case for why God ought to answer him. He's saying, Lord, I'm seeking you with my whole heart. I'm seeking you sincerely day and night in full integrity. So answer me. What a, what a bold prayer. Would you feel comfortable going to the king of kings and lord of lords and in essence saying, you should answer me because of the fervency and earnestness of my prayer life? But there are clues here in the text that this is not self-righteous legalism. The psalmist isn't saying, my prayer life is so stellar that I expect an answer from God. That's not what's happening here. But instead, if we look closely in the text, we will see that this prayer is motivated by an unusually profound faith. Look at verses 147 and 148, the second half of each verse. So he says in the first half of 147, I rise before dawn and cry for help. I hope, what? What does he hope in? Does he, ho- he hopes in his prayer performance, clearly. He, he hopes in his stellar track record of holiness. No, no. I hope in your words. Look at verse 148. My eyes are awake before the... What is this man meditating on in the middle of the night? Is he meditating on his performance? Is he self-confident? No, he says, I meditate on your promise. And note this, the word promise in this text is singular. The psalmist has grabbed a hold of one promise in God's word, and he is taking that promise to the Lord day and night, fervently, waking up before the sun rises, staying up through the watches of the night, taking this promise to the throne room and saying, Lord, you have made a promise, and my life depends on this promise. The author is not saying, give me what I've earned. You and I cannot earn anything but condemnation from the Lord. 
What he is saying is, Lord, you've made promises about how you will respond when your people seek you. Friends, this text connects us to a rich vein of biblical teaching that I fear has fallen out of favor in some evangelical circles. I hope you can sense that there is a theological substructure that undergirds the kind of urgent, passionate, desperate seeking of the Lord that we see in this stanza. Let me give you some examples from scripture. And please bear with me. I'm going to read more scriptures than I typically would because I want you to get a sense of how full the Bible is of this theme. It's all across the pages of scripture. First Chronicles 16:11. Seek the Lord and his strength. Seek his face continually. Psalm 145:18. The Lord is near Who is he near to? To all who call on him. To all who call on him in truth. Proverbs 8, 17. Those who diligently seek me will find me. Jeremiah 29, 13. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with what? With all of your heart. Lamentations 3, 25. The Lord is good to who? He is good to them that wait for him, to the soul that seeks him. James 4, 8. Draw near to God. And he will what? Draw near to you. Hebrews eleven six. And without faith, it is impossible to please him. For he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who do what? Who seek him. Seeking the Lord is an intrinsic part of our faith. The author of Hebrews could not even define faith apart from seeking God. Seeking God is actually part of the very definition of faith. You cannot please God unless you believe that he rewards fervent seeking. That's what Hebrews is saying. I have a concern. And it is a concern for Reformed churches in particular. That is... Churches that most celebrate the sovereignty of God over all things, who rightly celebrate the sovereignty of God, who rejoice in the sovereignty of God over all things. Amen. We need to rejoice in that. But I am concerned that a subtle misunderstanding of God's sovereignty actually serves to undermine and weaken our zeal for the things of God. We can fall into what theologians call hyper-Calvinism, a line of thinking that has more in common with philosophical determinism than it does with biblical Christianity. Let me explain. Determinism is the belief that all things are predetermined in such a way that we have no agency, that our choices and our decisions don't matter. And and when we begin to conflate the doctrine of God's sovereignty with determinism, it inevitably decreases our zeal for God. I I truly believe that a muddled version of determinism is often hiding what is in fact simple complacency or spiritual laziness or even worldliness. The thinking goes something like this. If God is sovereign and he has the spiritual side of my life taken care of, 
then I'm free to go pursue whatever it is that I want in this life, apart from God. God's sovereign. He's got everything wrapped up, taken care of. So I'm going to live a life that looks exactly like everyone else in the world. People who don't know him, people who do know him. The only difference between me and them is that I've said a prayer and I've come into the kingdom. So now I'm just free to seek whatever everyone else is seeking in this world. The Christian life is not the same life that everyone else is living, except with a get out of hell free card in our back pocket. When the Holy Spirit gives us new spiritual life through faith in Jesus Christ, it is the starting point of a qualitatively different life. We were enemy. If you are in Christ this afternoon, you were an enemy with God, and now you have been reconciled. The way into the holy of holies, the way into God's presence has been opened for you. The curtain's been torn in two. We have been given permission to go into the throne room and speak with the king. But friends, hear me. How often do we go through the door? If you're in Christ, you've been born again into something. You've been born again into a reciprocal relationship with your creator. Praise be to God that he has not saved us and told us to go stand in the corner while he takes care of everything. He has invited us into the work. There is a reason for us to get up in the morning. Do you feel the excitement of that? Jesus, faith in Jesus Christ removes the condemnation of the law. There's no longer anything to fear. And then he invites you to come to the table and work with him on the greatest mission the world has ever known. He has put his Holy Spirit inside you to help you learn to walk in a way that he promises will give you ever-increasing joy and will give him glory. He has given you spiritual gifts that are needed and necessary for the building up of his church. He has made us his ambassadors to a lost world. Can you believe that? Corinthians says it's as though God is making his appeal through us. Your decisions and choices, they matter, my friends. You have agency. And finally, you are called on page after page after page of Holy Scripture to seek him and he will reveal himself more and more fully to you in a relationship of intimate love. That is what is on offer for you if you are in Christ Jesus today. There is a kind of closeness with God, mark my words, there is a kind of closeness with God that we can only experience when we seek him. A quality of relationship that is conditioned upon wholehearted seeking. Do you want that? Do you long for God the way the psalmist in Psalm 42 does? That you long for God the way a deer pants for streams of water. If you do, Psalm 119 can help. Psalm 119 can tell us how to seek the Lord so that he may be found. And that brings us to point number two. According to his covenant love, verse 149. Let's look at 149 
together. Hear my voice according to your steadfast love. O Lord, according to your justice, give me life. What is the psalmist's basis for confidence that the Lord will hear and respond to him? What is the foundation? What, what, what conviction does the psalmist have that makes him think that the Lord of the universe is going to respond to his prayer? It is not his, the quality of his prayer life. It's not the fervency of his seeking. Well, pastor, how can you say that? I thought this whole sermon was about seeking the Lord. No, your seeking cannot earn God's love for you. Amen? That is good news. That is good news. All the seeking in the world cannot earn God's favor. And his seeking, the psalmist's fervent, passionate, desperate seeking is not the basis of his request. His seeking is actually the result. It's a result of certain convictions about God. Convictions that were forged in the furnace of passionate, prayerful meditation on God's word. Look, at back, look back at verses 145 to 148. We know he's crying out wholeheartedly. We know he's calling attention to the fervency of his prayers. But look at the second half of each verse. With my whole heart I cry, Lord, answer me. I will keep your statutes. This man is putting his money where his mouth is. I'm willing to walk in the ways of your, your word, Father. I call to you, save me, that I may what? That I may observe your testimonies. I rise before dawn. I hope in your words. This man has been meditating on scripture and he's come away with certain convictions about God and his character. So if his performance, if his personal holiness, if his seeking isn't the reason that he's confident that God's going to listen, then what is it? What's the basis of his request? Hear my voice according to your steadfast love. God's steadfast love is the basis of his confidence. The Hebrew word here is hesed. It's come up several times in our study of Psalm 119. And it is an incredibly precious word for us. It has the connotation of faithfulness. It's sometimes translated as loving kindness. Uh, note the adjective that the translators use in our text, steadfast love. Steadfast love is God's commitment to keep his promises to his people. It could be translated this way, as commentator Christopher Ash translates it throughout Psalm 119, covenant love. Steadfast love is God's covenant love for his people. Now, make a mental note. The first aspect of his confidence that God will respond is God's covenant love. But look at the second half of the verse, second half of verse 149. According to your justice... What? What? Look, it's, it's completely understandable that I might go to God and ask him to hear me through the lens of his love for me. Completely understandable. Lord, please, please don't look at my sins. Please hear me. Please hear these prayers through the lens of your covenant love. That's how I want you to hear me, Lord. But according to your justice... How can the psalmist pray this prayer? How can he possibly appeal 
to God's justice to give him life. Do you know what you and I and the author of Psalm 119 deserve according to God's justice? I mean, do you feel it in your bones? What we deserve in the eyes of the justice of an almighty holy God. I'm going to ask you a personal question. And by God's grace, you don't have to answer it out loud. We'll save that for community group. What do you think you deserve in this life? Honestly speaking, what are you entitled to? We breathe the air of a culture that is intoxicated with a false view of what we deserve. Brothers and sisters, we are responsible for introducing sin and death into this world. What is a fitting consequence for that? I'm talking about you and I, not just Adam and Eve in the garden. No, you and I are sinners by nature and by choice. We knowingly rebelled against a good and holy creator God after he told us that death would be the result. That's the argument of Romans 1, 18 to 25. We are without excuse before a holy God. We have caused massive destruction and pain. Each one of us is complicit in the worst crime of human history. We exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator. What do you think is a fitting punishment for that? We deserve to be crushed. We deserve wrath. We deserve eternal separation from the Father. But somehow, in verse 151 of our text, God draws near to the scared sinner who is calling out to him day and night. How? How is that possible? Look at verse 149 again. Read it slowly. Hear my voice according to your steadfast love. O Lord, according to your justice, give me life. Do you see the foreshadowing of the cross in this verse? Friends, there is only one place where God's steadfast love and his justice, and his justice meet, and that is the cross of Jesus Christ. Romans 5, 8 but God demonstrates his own love for us in this. How? How, pastor? How does God demonstrate his love for us? While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. The pinnacle of God's steadfast love is on the cross of Christ. But what about his justice? Where does his justice come in? Romans 3, 23 to 26. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in whom? In Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation. Oh, blessed word, a propitiation. It means he took God's wrath upon himself by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be what? Just. He might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. 
God's justice and his love meet in one spot in the cross of Jesus Christ. Christ is crushed so that we can be accepted. Christ perfectly satisfies the righteous requirements of God's law. In Christ, God's justice turns from a fearful expectation of wrath for us, for you and me, to a wondrous display of unspeakable love. It is only in Christ that we could ever appeal to God's justice. Stop and think about that for a second. It's not only loving for God to forgive your sins. It's just for him to do so. Because of Christ, it is just. That's the argument of 1 John chapter 1 and verse 9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. It would be unjust for God to punish the same sin twice. Christ received the full wrath of God for the sins who, of all who come to him by faith in Jesus. Let's pause and summarize what we've seen in this text so far. The psalmist is earnestly, desperately seeking the Lord. He's motivated. What is he motivated by? Not by his own performance. He's motivated by faith in God's character and covenant promises as they are revealed in God's word. The circumstances that drove him to seek God with such desperate intensity which are described in verse 150, involve what is probably a physical threat from his enemies. Note verse 146. This is where I get the idea that it is a physical threat. I call to you, save me, that I may observe your testimonies. So something is happening. His enemies are threatening something that would prevent this man from continuing to walk in God's testimonies in this life. I think this is a physical threat, and I believe the psalmist believes his life is in danger. So the author is praying for deliverance from a physical threat. And in the final few verses of our text, he's going to describe how God responded to his request. And the response is beautifully understated. But it is quietly earth-shaking for our perspective on the circumstances in our lives. And that brings us to our final point, the nearness of God. Look at verses 150 and 151. They, that is the enemies, draw near who persecute me with evil purpose. They are far from your law. But you, you are near, O Lord. And all of your commandments are true. First, I want to draw your attention to the intentional, poetic interplay between near and far in these two verses. The enemies are near, but they are far from God's law, but God is near. Commentator Derek Kidner un uncovers the beauty here better than anyone else. He says, note the realism of the double statement. They draw near, but thou art near. The threat is not glossed over. It is put in perspective by a bigger fact. Is there anything in your life for which the nearness of the God of the universe would not be a bigger fact? Did you walk in today carrying concern 
anxiety, worry, distress over anything you care to name. Our finances, short. Health. Uh, what you're going to do in your career. What, what, what did you walk in here carrying? Fill in the blank with your own circumstances in life. Is there any possible circumstance for which the creator of the universe drawing near would not become a much bigger fact, a massively bigger fact, a fact around which everything else in our lives would immediately reorient itself. Now we have to highlight what I think is an obvious fact here, that the author, at least in this moment, in this text, he did not receive the answer that he was looking for. I think it's obvious from this text that the author went to God he was clinging to promises about God saving those who seek him. He's saying, here are the enemies, Lord. I'm seeking you. They're not seeking you. They're far from you. And I want you to destroy them. I want you to physically save me. I want you to protect me. That's the prayer. How does God respond? The creator of galaxies. The one who made the solar system. The one who could utter one single word, and this man's enemies would be completely eradicated. God drew near to this man. I argued in the introduction that this is much more than a physical nearness, and now I think, I trust that we can all feel that. This is not a matter of proximity to God, as I said, God is omnipresent. Physically speaking, he's equally close to the one who cares nothing about him and to the one who's diligently seeking him. By the end of this psalm, the psalmist is experiencing the unique nearness that God promises to those who seek him by faith in his promises. And ultimately, that means those who seek him by faith in Jesus Christ, in whom all the promises of God are yes and amen. This is a relational intimacy with your creator. The Bible often describes this as knowing God. Many of you would be aware that when the Bible uses the term know, it's, it means much more than head knowledge. It's a relational knowing. It's the same word that the Old Testament uses to describe marital intimacy. It's a complete knowing of the other. The entire storyline of the Bible is about this kind of knowing of your creator. The Bible is a story of reconciliation with God. In the biblical worldview, this is what happened in this stanza. In the biblical worldview, the author goes to God asking for a penny, that is deliverance from physical circumstances, and he receives fabulous untold wealth, millions of dollars, that is personal presence and intimacy with God. There is nothing presented as more valuable in Scripture than relationship with God. Everybody, it's so easy to nod our head to that. <laughs> Let me say it one more time. There is nothing in Scripture presented as more valuable to you and me than relationship with your Creator, than knowing God. J.I. Packer puts it this way in his classic work, What were we made for to know God? 
What aim should we set ourselves in life? To know God. What is the eternal life that Jesus gives? It's knowledge of God. This is eternal life that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. What is the best thing in life, bringing more joy, delight, and contentment than anything else? It's knowledge of God. This is what the Lord says. Let not the wise man boast in his wisdom, or the strong man boast of his strength, or the rich man boast of his riches, but let him who boasts boast about this, that he understands and knows me. It's impossible not to think of Paul in Philippians 3.8 exclaiming, I count all things as loss compared to the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and I count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. And I think you know that in the Greek, rubbish is a much stronger word. This is the bigger fact This is what happened to the psalmist in our text today. The creator of the universe drew near to him in such a way that he could know him better. Can we even perceive what a game changer this is? If God is with you, then what can you not face? Doesn't it make you want to shout? You can walk out of this room knowing That God is with you and has promised you ever-increasing depth and intimacy and joy in relationship with him. The the psalmist began this stanza in a frenzy of passionate seeking, sleepless nights, pouring over God's word, crying out to God in deep emotion and need, taking God's promises to his throne and saying, look, God, you promised you've got to come through for me. And this stanza ends in peace, in God's presence, in the rock-solid conviction that these enemies cannot derail God's promises for him. He met God in a deeper and more fundamental way than he had. And where did he meet him? He met him in the crucible of desperate seeking. And he walked away calm, confident, and loved God draws near to those who seek him. But the question is, is God's presence a bigger fact for you today? Are you aware of the value of the presence of God in your life? Are you, if you are in Christ today, are you walking around completely blown away with all the color draining out of your face like the man who just found out his painting is worth over a million dollars that the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Godhead, resides in you and that you have access to him at any moment of the day and that God has promised you that if you seek him, you will find him, that he will come to you, that he will meet your every need. is the gift that Christ died to secure for us. That is God's nearness, reconciliation with God. Is that gift hanging behind the door or in a closet, gathering dust? Are you going through the trials and temptations, the ups and downs of this life as though he is not near you? Friend, if that's you today, let me invite you back. 
you and I both know from long experience that nothing else you could possibly be seeking can satisfy you the way relationship with God can. There is nothing more valuable for you today than knowing God and ever-deepening intimacy. Let's have the worship team come on up. I have two points of application that I want to encourage you to consider from this text today. First, if you are not a follower of Christ, if you have never come to the foot of the cross and repented of your sins and turned away from seeking all else other than Jesus Christ, your Lord and Savior, I believe this text would warn you in a couple of different ways. One, there is only one way to get to God. God's steadfast covenant love and his justice only meet in one place, my friend. It only meets in the cross of Christ. Christ is the door. No man can come to the Father except through Jesus. He is the mediator. Please do not, if you walked in here thinking that the Lord would accept you on your own merits, if you walked in here thinking that the Lord will accept you because you're pretty good, because you don't do things that are as bad as that guy down the street or the other person at work, please hear this. There is only one way to God and it's through repentance and faith in the Savior, our Lord and King, Jesus Christ. And please hear the invitation. There is nothing in this world that will satisfy you like Christ will. Nothing can satisfy your soul like relationship with God through faith in Christ. It is what every person in this room was made for. Don't waste one more second seeking the things of this world. If that's you, please I hope you'll come talk to me after the service. I would love to speak with you. And second, for those of you who have already put your faith in Jesus and have already tasted the goodness of God's presence in your life, Sovereign Grace Church of Pasadena, hear this call loud and clear. Seek the Lord. Seek the Lord. Please do not grow complacent in your seeking of the Lord. Not because by your seeking you are earning his love, but because you trust his promises. Because the faith that perceives the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ is a seeking faith. It is an insatiable faith. It is a faith that knows God tastes sweeter than anything else on this earth. And I'm going to keep pounding on that door in prayer in his scriptures so that I can know more of him every day of my life. Seek the Lord. Are you still aware? Let me remind you that the one who created the universe has removed every barrier to friendship with him. He's invited you to commune with him, to learn from him, to be satisfied deeply in him. He can give you joy and pleasure. Psalm 16 says pleasures forevermore. Fullness of joy. That is what is on offer for you if you continue to seek the Lord. Are you, like Paul, still aware right now, honestly, in this moment of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, your Lord? A hard question. 
Have you been growing in your relationship with Christ? Is your perception of the value of your relationship with God such that you would pray through the watches of the night? Do you perceive the value such that you would give up your sleep to seek him? Can you imagine yourself fasting and foregoing food because you're so hungry to be filled with more of Christ? This is how the pages of scripture describe those who have tasted and seen the goodness of our God. The promise is so simple and so powerful. God draws near to those who seek him. May we be a church that passionately, earnestly, joyfully seeks the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we are so thankful for the Lord Jesus Christ. We are so thankful that you are not sitting on your throne in heaven and grading our seeking. Oh, Tim fell short this week. He only gets a 69 on his test of seeking me, so I'm not going to draw near to him this, this week. No, in Christ, by faith in Christ, we are reconciled to you. Lord, I pray that you would whet our appetite afresh to grow in relationship with you. I pray that you would stir us up as a church, that we would be a desperately, passionately, zealously seeking church, that we would be insatiable. Oh, Lord, fill us up. Teach us about the kind of joy and pleasure that's only available in your presence. Help us to, help us to know in our bones that this wor- world has nothing to offer that can compare with you. Father, I pray that you would send your Holy Spirit to apply this text to our lives as we leave here today. In Jesus' name, amen.